Well, it's finally happened. I'm becoming a Mennonite. How do I know that? Well, for the last year or so, I found myself becoming increasingly nostalgic. My heart seems to be drawn backward in time. I've become more and more preoccupied by the past. I'm becoming a Mennonite. Well, the nostalgia manifests itself in a bunch of different ways. For example, I've been uh, feeling especially nostalgic for the music of my youth and not just Thunderclap Newman and the Beach Boys. I've also been listening to my old Keith Green and Second Chapter of Axe albums. Um, to go even further back, uh, back in my junior high school days, our family lived in the parsonage of the First Assembly of God Church in Haverstraw, New York. And this was back in the late 1960s. My parents had this jumbo radio phonograph combination thing. It was this big old floor model. It was made from this blondish wood. And you had to lift the coffin-like lid uh, to access the switches and the turntable. Well, over the years that my father was a pastor, um, we must have hosted dozens of gospel quartets in our congregations. And over those same years, he collected lots of gospel albums, albums that I would listen to from time to time on that big old blonde stereo. Now, my favorite was an album uh, by the Statesman Quartet, the original gospel supergroup. Hovey Lister, Rosie Roselle, Jake Hess, James Big Chief Weatherington, Doy Ott. Amen. <laughs> Can I get a witness? <laughs> it's possible that the reason I liked them so much was because they had a slightly kind of rock and rolly edge to them. Um, the word was that Elvis was a big fan. And that Hovey Lister's piano playing had um, actually taught Jerry Lee Lewis a thing or two. Anyway, the album that I really especially liked was one called Peace, O Lord. And the cover of this album was a, was a photograph from a concert. And the statesmen were dressed in these awesome blue suits um, and black shoes and these really sweet skinny black ties. And they were all sweating and shouting um, and singing into these old school um, microphones. And Hovey Lister was leaning away from the piano as if there was a heavy wind coming out of it. And the song I played till it almost wore a hole in the album was called Jonah Go Down to Nineveh, which was written by Mosey Lister, Hovey's brother. So I'd open up that coffin lid and I'd put the album on the spindle and I'd turn it on. And the sweet thing was that my favorite song um, was the first song on side two. So, and this will be a bit of a revelation to those of you under 30. Um, back then you had to worry about scratching the album um, because you actually had to put a needle on it and it spun around. Anyways, I was really grateful that my favorite song was the first one on side two, so I didn't have to worry about scratching up the rest of the record, trying to find the right spot. And then there were all these little snaps and pops, you remember those, um, that gave old records their charm. And then they would sort of segue into this um, jaunty electric guitar. And then I would sing along with the boys. Um, back then I could hit the high notes with old, with old Rosie, and, and although I confess I wished I could swing low with Big Chief. Um, anyway. Last year, I decided I needed to have that album. Um, my dad's records had long since been given away. Um, and every once in a while, I'd look for it online, hoping it was on CD, and no luck there. Um, and then I found it on eBay, the original LP. And I placed my bid. I, I don't know if that's allowed in the Mennonite church or not, but I did. <laughs> and sure enough, I got it. 
And when it came, I unwrapped it really carefully, and I just admired that beautiful cover. And took it upstairs and cranked up our rarely used phone turntable, and I put it on. And as random as this may seem, I'm going to ask Carly to play my favorite song from that album for you. That's cool. <laughs> I, I am absolutely honest. I, I that yeah, that is cool. I wish I could do that. Um, I still sing along with the album, okay? Um, although I'm a lot closer now to Big Chief um, than I am to Rosie, and quite honestly, sometimes that change disappoints me. Though it used to be my wildest dream. Well, this is a sermon after all. The Book of Jonah. Um, is, I believe, uh, a parable written in order to poke fun at the chosen people's sense of chosenness, or maybe not so much to poke fun at that, is to parody the way they often behave because of it. It's a not a comic book, but a comical book, I think, um, with its recalcitrant and incompetent hero, Jonah the prophet, who refuses to prophesy, the big fish, and the lingering image of old Jonah thrown up on the beach, literally. Jonah still damp and stinking, half-heartedly wandering the streets of Nineveh, calling the people to repent. The animals of Nineveh, all dressed up in sackcloth. 
Jonah going off to pout and God giving Jonah the equivalent of the ancient equivalent of a dope slap. And of course, the subtext of the whole thing is that uh, it's a call to Israel to never forget that God loves all sinners and is going to save them whether Israel cooperates or not. It's a wonder this story made it into the Bible. It really is. And I suppose it's a testimony to the ancient Hebrews that it did. What with all the responsibility attached to being the focus of God's attention, not to mention God's messengers to the world, they managed to retain their sense of humor. Imagine hearing this story for the first time during those years when, say, oh, I don't know, Assyria was the big power off to the north, the Assyrian Empire with Nineveh as its capital city, like a lion off to the north uh, waiting to pounce, maybe on Egypt if it got too big for its britches, and, and there's poor Israel stuck right in between the two. Then with visions of geopolitical nightmares dancing in your heads, one of the old ones, a grandmother, let's say, starts to tell the story. And the children stop their playing and sit down by the fire. The old men act bored, um, but they're focused on the familiar beginning because they know what's coming, even if the young ones do not. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai, saying, Go at once to Nineveh, that great city, and cry out against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. Sweet, the young ones think. God is going to pound Assyria into dust. Everybody likes a good story of vengeance, right? And justice done to the wicked. And so the little ones settle into the story, leaning into their mothers because, okay, vengeance is sweet, but it's also just a little bit unnerving. The old ones, of course, are still as stone. They know it's coming. Grandmother speaks. And Jonah hightails it away from the Lord. And the young ones sit up. Wait a minute. Jonah hops a boat. The storm comes. The sailors guess that someone on board has made God angry. They cast lots, and the finger points to Jonah. They chide Jonah. Jonah tells them it's a fair cop. They agonize over what to do with him. He tells them to throw him overboard. He deserves it, after all. But the pagan the pagan sailors are better than that, and they try to wake, make their way free of the storm without tossing Jonah overboard, but to no avail. The storm just keeps getting worse, and finally, after begging the Lord for mercy, they go ahead and toss Jonah into the sea, But Jonah can't escape his destiny even by drowning because God sends a big fish to swallow Jonah. Then Jonah prays this really long prayer of repentance and confession and promises to cooperate the next time around if there is a next time around. And the big fish chucks him up onto the beach. God tells Jonah to go to Nineveh and warn them of their doom second time. And this time Jonah does what he's told. He walks from one side of Nineveh to the other proclaiming the coming of God's wrath if the people do not repent. And lo and behold, they do. They repent. They believe Jonah's warning. Well, the king gets word of the revival that's going on in his city and jumps on board with both feet. He puts on sackcloth and ashes and makes a proclamation, calling every human being and every animal in Nineveh to do the same. And so... Children are busily putting sackcloth coats on their dogs and their cats and their chickens. And the chickens, of course, are not cooperating. And their parents, meanwhile, are doing the same thing with the sheep and the cattle and the goats. And, of course, the goats are not cooperating. And the whole city fasts and repents. And most remarkable of all, God has changed his mind about the calamity that he said he would bring upon them. And he did not do it. God changed his mind about the calamity that he had said he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. Happy ending, right? Well, the old ones try to stay cool because they don't want to give away the punchline. The young ones, well, they're young ones, so they assume they know what's coming next. 
Then grandmother starts again. But this was very displeasing to Jonah, and he became angry. What? He became angry. And then let God know about it. How Nineveh was this wicked and pagan and, and city and didn't deserve any mercy from anybody, least of all God. I mean, okay, God's mercy was really nice when it was well, being shown to Jonah, but this was going too far. This, it turns out, was precisely what Jonah was afraid of, that God would relent and extend mercy and not blast Nineveh to smithereens. And so God asked Jonah, is it right for you to be angry? Jonah heads for the hills in his, to be alone in his anger. And then God pursues him and God plants a little bush to give Jonah some shade, maybe cool his hot head. And Jonah likes the bush. Then the next day, God places a worm in the bush, which attacks the bush and causes it to die. And then Jonah, or God sends this really nice hot wind to supplement the blazing sun. And Jonah is sore afflicted and grows faint and begs God to kill him. And God says to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry? You liked your bush a lot. And I killed it. And it made you angry. I gave you the bush. You didn't create it. You didn't even take care of it. And then I killed it. And you got angry. So angry that you wished you were dead. Now, if you get so worked up over a bush, don't I have the right to get worked up over a whole city full of people and animals? The end. Well, the old ones sigh, they get up and they go to bed, and the young ones beg to ask questions, but the look in grandmother's eye tells them they need to just let their questions sit for the night. And they go off to bed, um, holding their mother's hands against the cold, and, and, and that strange kind of uneasiness that they still feel, an uneasiness that maybe makes them want to shiver. I mean, Nineveh is saved, their enemy is saved. And what did happen to the prophet? God's chosen messenger, was he still out there somewhere, sitting all alone, wishing it, that that fish had left him to drown? Well, today is Mennonite World Fellowship Sunday. Time for us to remember and celebrate our place in the larger work of Christ around the world. A day, too, uh, to recognize and celebrate the changes in the church and in the world around us. And we're going to start with the world around us by naming the elephant, I mean the donkey, in the room. We have an African-American president. I happened to be at the um, Mennonite Historical Society on Tuesday, diligently working my way through Bishop Board Minutes um, in pursuit of my paper. And um, Steve Ness, some of you may know Steve, decided to tempt everybody who was down there attending to their own business by putting a TV over in the corner of the room so that we could watch the inauguration. And so I did. And um, there was a, a gray-haired old gentleman who was um, volunteering down in the library that day, and he and I kind of stood together and, and watched um, some of the inauguration. And, and the thing that struck me was that when Rick Warren began to pray, um, about halfway through his prayer, I noticed that my companion was weeping. And um, by the time it was ready for the oath of office, I found myself sort of on the edge of that myself. Um, and I realized, you know, I, never, I didn't believe this was going to happen. I, I really didn't. Um, I firmly believed that racism was too entrenched, too powerful. And yet there he was. And, and, 
And here we are. It's an astonishing thing. And I think whether we support Barack Obama or not, whether we supported him during the campaign, whatever we feel about him now, um, it, it seems to me the fact that we elected an African-American to be president is remarkable, something to be celebrated, perhaps even a small sign of growing national maturity. Um, so that's a change that I think, well, has to be named. In the church, we mark and celebrate changes too. The amazing spirits and testimony of sisters and brothers in the global south, uh, showing us what it means to be faithful in the face of tremendous hardship, uh, coping with warfare, with corrupt governments, poverty, AIDS, lack of resources, and yet vibrantly bearing witness to the hope that we have in Christ, a hope that is too often displaced in the North American church by a general malaise and depression over our own declining power and the vague anxiety that's often felt by the bored and the prosperous. The spirit and energy and passion of our sisters and brothers in the global south may well be their greatest gift to us, challenging us as they do to imagine a world beyond the empire, a world shaped not by human power and human wisdom and human energy, but shaped instead by a common call and commitment to follow Jesus and to be a light to the world and to be a messenger of God's saving intention. And we need to be reminded of God's saving intention. We need to be reminded particularly of the wideness of that intention. Because like Jonah, I think we can easily begin to assume that we know fully the shape and size of God's mercy, just how big it is, how wide or how big and wide it ought to be. We can begin to think that we know better than God does, who is or who ought to be saved. And we can even seek to prevent God's message of repentance and salvation from reaching the ears of those that we think are beyond the pale, our modern-day Ninevites, whoever they might be. And we erect boundaries around that mercy, or we try to, and we insist that it's, it's not for our enemies, or it's, it's not for those that are different from us in one way or another. And in so doing, I think we effectively run away from God's mercy out of fear that it might actually work, that it might actually cause somebody to put on sackcloth and repent and so become part of God's work in the world. But our sisters and brothers around the world remind us that God's intentions cannot be thwarted, not even by God's own people. I mean, think about it. Too often in church history, the gospel has been entangled with one imperial project after another, Christianizing and civilizing and colonizing all at once. Too often throughout church history, Christians have done their best to set rigid boundaries around God's mercy. This far, no further, this way, and no other. Our way, and no other. Offering the gospel with one hand and taking whatever we could grab with the other. I mean, that sounds really, really harsh, but I think it's true. Across the globe and throughout Christian history, the good news of Jesus has too often been corrupted by the bad news of exploitation and oppression. And yet, look what God did in spite of us. The church in the global south, the church in Asia, is growing in leaps and bounds. A vibrant, righteous, peace-building, justice-making church. The good news is busting right through all the hedges that we put in its way. God's saving intention is being revealed, which doesn't take us off the hook and doesn't make us free to say, oh, well, that wasn't so bad after all. But it ought to make us give, it ought to make us give thanks, I think, to the God whose mercy is too great to be contained by our worst efforts whose saving purpose is too powerful to be thwarted, even by Jonah, even by us. And so we give thanks on this Mennonite World Fellowship Day 
that the same God who loved Nineveh and saved it, despite Jonah's worst efforts, is still at work in the world, saving the world, bringing healing and hope to people across the globe. We give thanks to God whose intention is to save and who promises to fulfill that intention, a promise already being fulfilled across the world, a promise I think most evident to us in the witness of sisters and brothers in the larger Mennonite Fellowship. Well, I've been feeling a little nostalgic lately, as I said, looking back a lot, reminiscing, tracking down old music. Not entirely sure what provokes that nostalgia. Maybe I really am becoming a Mennonite. Maybe I'm just getting older. I don't know. Um, maybe every once in a while we just do need to go back and, and sift through our past and, and look again at the good stuff, uh, the nice things, those things that are gone now, but that used to nurture our spirits. The temptation, of course, is to wish ourselves back there. We can be tempted, I think, to a kind of false naivete and begin imagining that things were just so much better back then, so much simpler, so much tidier. The past can offer us a shrunken and cozy world, a world we can inhabit without any second thoughts or any ambiguity, a world where we were in control of our destiny and where everybody occupied their rightful place where no one troubled the waters of the status quo, a world untouched by change, or at least untouched by the kinds of changes that we struggle now to come to terms with. Nostalgia that leads to that kind of pretending is, I think, best left unindulged because the world has changed. And while we are in no way naive enough to think that things are always getting better, while we stop believing in that particular modern myth, we do see signs of God's continued movement in the world, signs that God's saving purpose continues Signs that God's intention to redeem the Ninevites and all the world has been and will not, has not been and will not be thwarted. And one of the most prominent of those signs is the one we see as we remember and celebrate our part in a much larger worldwide Mennonite church, which is itself part of an even larger worldwide body of Christ. So let's go ahead and listen to the old songs, the old LPs. Let's look back and celebrate who we used to be. Let's tell the old stories to the young ones while the old ones wink and nod their heads at what's coming next. Our Mennonite passion for history, for looking back, for remembering the good old days in Europe. Well, maybe they weren't all that great, but the old days in Europe or Canada or Haverstraw or Lancaster County. It's all good, as they say. Useful, nurturing, comforting. Instructive, But let's rejoice and sing some new songs, too. Let's be glad as we look around and see all that God is doing in our world. And let's listen to new stories, new Mennonite stories, stories from Colombia and Nicaragua and Paraguay, stories from Congo and Somalia and Ethiopia, stories from Indonesia and Vietnam and India. Let's make room in the circle. No. Let's admit that the circle has already been enlarged, expanded beyond what we ever thought it would be, maybe even should be, expanded by the sheer force and beauty of God's saving intention. The world has changed, but God's saving intention continues. From Nineveh to the world that sits just around the next corner, God's saving intention continues. And no one can stop it. Not Jonah and not us. Thanks be to God. That's worth a song. Amen. Amen.